You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. I have a... uh... I have a book in my office back at Heritage that's called The Man God Uses. It's written by uh, J. Oswald Smith. You might remember that name. J. Oswald Smith was the longtime pastor at People's Church in Toronto. And he wrote a book about what are the qualities that are needed in a man or a woman that God would use in his service. And knowing your pastor, Pastor Ross, like I do, I know that that is an aspirational goal that you have, to be used by God. Your family wants that. You want that. Now, J. Oswald Smith was not the first person to write about the kind of person God uses. In fact, in the Bible, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a younger minister to tell him to be the man that God uses. I'm referencing here the the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, a young man who had been charged with leading a church in the city of Ephesus. And Paul wanted this young man to flourish in his service. Paul wanted him to be blessed by God and used by God. So Paul wrote him a letter, a very personal letter, applicable to the church, but targeted at a minister. And in this book, there is a passage that really focuses in on the kind of minister God uses. And so this morning, I would like to uh, remind you, Ross, of what Paul said to Timothy, because it's not just Paul's words, it's God's word. God's word to you, God's word to me, God's word to us. And really for all of you, to know the kind of pastor that God calls to be in your church, but the kind of people that God calls us all to be. So if you have a Bible, would you join me today in 2 Timothy chapter 2? 2 Timothy chapter 2. And my hope today is that... uh, your, your new pastor and my friend, Ross Kearney, will, will be encouraged and challenged and shaped and sharpened, but my hope is beyond that. I'm hoping that you will take this personally as well, that God's Spirit through His Word would touch your heart to say, well, I want to be somebody that God uses. And today you'll see part of the picture of what that takes. I know we prayed, I so appreciated the prayers of dedication, but let me pray for our time in Scripture and then we'll, we'll look at it together. Lord, on this historic and joyful day when this family of faith installs and welcomes and blesses a new pastoral family to serve them, I'm thankful, Lord, that all that's gone before and all that will come after is in your hands. You know, as Paul was praying a little earlier, Lord, it's all known to you and we trust you. And now, Lord, we turn our attention to hear from you through your word. I pray that I would be faithful to stay tethered to the text and that you would be gracious to open up our hearts wide to receive it. And especially I pray today for my friend Ross that as he begins pastoring this fellowship of faith, you would remind him and strengthen him for the calling you've given him. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Today we're going to be in verses 14 to 26, and the idea of being useful, being used by God, comes out right in the middle of our passage. Let me just give you a little preview of it. Look at verse 21. It says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Here it is, set apart as holy and useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Useful to the master. 
And that's going to be the theme of what I think Paul says and what I'm going to say to Pastor Ross and to all of us. What does it take to be useful to the master? Well, in these verses, Paul highlights at least three things that need to be true in your pastor's life. But again, I would say to all of us who want to be useful to the master, these things apply to us as well. Let me walk through verses 14 to 26 and show you the three things that Paul highlights for Timothy, applying them to Ross and then extending them to you. The first one is going to come for us in verses 14 to 19. And what we're going to see there is to be a person, to be a pastor that's useful to God. Here's the first thing you must do. To be useful to God, you must handle God's word accurately. You must handle God's word accurately. A pastor who's going to be faithful and effective has to handle God's word effectively, especially at a time when everybody's saying a bunch of other stuff that's not true. And that's what was going on here. You'll sense it as I read verses 14 to 19. Look at it, please. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but... God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Timothy was posted to serve a church where there was a lot of conversation, a lot of quarreling, a lot of controversy swirling around. Not everybody was speaking the truth, and Timothy is installed in that church to serve that church at a time when there was great confusion and error. Verse 14 says that they were quarreling. The people were quarreling about words. Verse 16 talks about people giving what my translation says, irreverent babble. Some translations say godless chatter. That only leads to more and more ungodliness, verse 16 says, and spreads like a spiritual disease, like gangrene, verse 17. And then Paul names two of the ringleaders that are not teaching the truth, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Verse 18, he says, they've swerved from the truth, like they've driven into a doctrinal ditch. Because they've been saying, verse 18 says, that the resurrection has already happened. Now, the resurrection of Jesus had happened. But these guys were evidently saying that we have experienced the resurrection in its fullness. We're now in the kingdom of God. We're in the final state. Some kind of realized eschatology was going on. So they're saying all this stuff. And Paul, 18, Paul says in verse 18, it's messing people up. Look at the end of verse 18. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now into that kind of spiritual setting, Timothy is called to be a pastor. It's not hard for us to realize that we still live in a day that is much like that day, don't we? Do we got quarrels going around our place these days? Is there a lot of irreverent babble and godless chatter? 
Are there some people that are swerving from truth and getting into doctrinal ditches? We go, yeah, yeah, that's all happening. So what is a pastor to do? What was Timothy to do? What, Pastor Ross, what are you to do? Well, if you look at the verses closely, what I just read, it's clear from verse 14, you're trying, you got to calm people down. You tell them to cease and desist in their quarrels, right? Remind them, verse 14, charge them before God not to quarrel about words. But the main thing you're supposed to do is verse 15, and that is you are to teach God's truth accurately. When there's error swirling around, the best thing you can do for people is keep bringing them back to God's truth. Look at verse 15. It's very clear. Do your best. He's writing to Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, rightly handing. The old King James says, rightly dividing the word of truth. The Greek word that Paul uses there for rightly handling, rightly dividing, actually means to cut it straight. It's the idea of like cutting a straight path and then staying on the path and teaching it straight up. One of the things I've appreciated about the movement of GCC churches, and I have been in a number of your churches and friends with a number of your pastors, one of the things that I've appreciated and I think you're going to have in this new pastor is pastors who try to cut it straight and teach it straight. I just want to say... Well, let's go see what God's book says. Ross, your charge is not to tell people what you think, right? Your charge is to tell people what God says. There was an old theologian named Charles Hodge who wrote uh, volumes of theology. And at the end of his life, Charles Hodge said this, I never brought forth a single original thought. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, look, I wasn't making up anything. My job was just to go into this book and bring it to you. I I don't invent what I say. I just try to expose what God says. And Pastor Ross, that's your job. You got to handle the word accurately. People are saying all kinds of things out there. You come in here, you look at these dear men and women who you will come to know and love, and you tell them week after week, this is what God says. You reorient all of us to what God says. And by the way, doing that will take your best effort. Verse 15 begins by saying, do your best to present yourself to God. Do your best. The Greek word there, spudazo, has the idea of diligence, of like getting at it, staying on it, persevere in it. And you know, you've been doing this long enough that if you're going to be able to stand up and speak God's word to this family of faith, It's going to take all that you have in terms of doing your best to study it and to know it and to pray about it and then prepare it and then deliver it. Do your best to do that. Now, as a pastor, you will do more than just preach. You will lead and you will love. You will care for your family. 1 Timothy 3 says, if you don't care for this small flock, you can't care for this larger flock. But amidst all the things you must do, you must continue in a busy, bustling church to carve out time to study God's Word. Give the best of your thinking time to your sermon preparation so that you can feed them the Word of God. So that when you come on Sundays, you can say, this is what God says. It's been working in my heart all week. Now I get to tell it to you. And congregations, one of the ways that you can help your pastor 
is by respecting the fact that if he is going to have a nutritious meal for you on Sundays, he's going to have to spend a lot of time in the kitchen on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, right? He's going to have to spend time doing prep. And that's not wasted time. Oh, he's going to have time to get to know you and love you and lead with the elders. I so enjoyed meeting Brian and Dave and Tim this morning. He's going to be connected with them and your staff. But you can affirm to him, Pastor, we know that it takes time for you to spend in God's word, but that's time well spent. Because we want you to handle the word accurately. So what does it take to be useful to God as a pastor? The first thing Paul tells Timothy and the first thing I bring to you, my brother, to be useful to God, you have to handle God's word accurately. But Paul doesn't stop there. In fact, he goes on to give us a second thing that it takes to be useful to God in verses 20 to 22. In fact, if you don't do this second one, you're going to end up not being able to do the first one. In verses 20 to 22, Paul says this, to be useful to God, you not only have to handle God's word accurately, but secondly, you have to handle temptation immediately. You have to handle God's word accurately, but you also have to handle temptation immediately. I get that out of verses 20 to 22. Look at verse 20. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. There Paul tells Timothy and Ross, I bring to you, if you're going to be useful to God, you've got to have to learn to handle temptation immediately because you need to stay clean. That's really the emphasis here on being clean before God. Paul uses an illustration there in verse 20 to make his point. He talks about a large household. Can you picture a kind of great estate back in Paul's day or even in our day? And he goes, if you go into this large household, you'll find some articles that are made of gold. It's a wealthy house. So there's a golden article. There's silver chalices. There's silver bowls. And then you've got some articles that are made out of clay, clay pots, or wood. Paul's point is, in this case, he's saying, you know what makes those different articles useful? Is not how costly they are, but how clean they are. Like if you want to drink a water, would you rather drink out of a dirty golden cup or a clean clay pot? You go, well, I'll take the clean clay pot, right? So Paul makes that analogy, and he applies it to Timothy and the ministers in verse 21. He says, therefore, in light of this idea of the cleanliness of these different articles, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. What he's saying to you, Pastor Ross, what he's saying to me, what he's saying to us is this. Your holiness, being set apart to be holy, your holiness determines your usefulness, right? That, that's, that's an important thing. It's not your giftedness determines your usefulness. It's your holiness, being clean before God. See, you can have a golden gift. You can have a silver tongue. 
But God says, if you're not clean, I can't use you. On the other hand, you can feel like an ordinary clay pot, and that's how you'll feel, and that's how I feel most days. You're just going to feel like, man, who am I to be doing this? Like, this is bigger than I am. And you'll look around, and sometimes you'll compare your own gifting to others and go, I can't do that, I can't do that. But Paul is saying, look, at if you're clean before God, he can use you. Because he's the one, as, as he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the all-surpassing power may be seen of God, not of us. So it's not how you look on the outside, it's how you are on the inside that God looks for. Robert Murray McChain, who was an old Scottish preacher, once said this. He said, what my people need most is my personal holiness. Isn't that interesting? Here's a pastor who said, you know, you know the best thing I could do for the people I serve? The very best thing I could do is walk closely with God. What my people need most is my personal holiness. John Brodus, who, who was the first preaching prophet at Southern Seminary where you did your doctorate, John Brodus used to quote, I think it was Augustine, quoted it in Latin, which I can't say, but I can put it in English. And the phrase was this, if a man's life be lightning, his words be thunder. May, you, may God make you a man whose life is lightning so that your words will be thunder. Well, what's it going to take for a pastor? What's it going to take for a leader like you to stay clean? You and I know that we get our feet muddy. We fall down. What is it going to take to live a life that's useful to God because we're clean? Oh, yeah, I'm not golden. I'm not silver. I'm just clay or wood. But how can I be clean? How can Pastor Ross, how can Leanne, how can their family? What does it take to be clean? Well, I think Paul tells you in verse 22, he says three things. These apply to Pastor Ross, but boy, they apply to every one of us. If you want to stay clean so you can be useful, the first thing he says in verse 22 is this. Essentially, the one word, the one word answer is run. But the first thing he says is, run away, run away from sinful passions. Run away from sinful desires. Look at verse 22. He says, so, in, in light of all this, flee youthful passions. You want to stay clean? Then run. Run away from sinful passions. Like, don't loiter near temptation. When temptation comes east, you go west. Right? You run. You run away. Flee. The idea of fleeing has the idea of getting out of there as fast as you can, right? And here he says, flee the youthful passions. Ron, Ross, you're still a young man, but I got to tell you, even when you get to be a bit of an older man, those youthful passions don't all necessarily just pick on the young people. They keep coming at us. So you have to flee all your life when the sinful passions come. He says, don't, don't, Timothy, don't hang around those things. You say, well, what are the sinful passions we're supposed to flee from? 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee immorality. You and I know that there are pastors far more gifted than, than we are who are no longer in ministry because they didn't do that. So, prize your, so keep prizing your love for Leanne and let everybody know that there is no one else who captures your heart. Keep a distance between some who want to get a little too close to you, maybe for wrong reasons. You just flee from that. You just say, I'm not going there. Because I want to be useful to God. 
So flee sexual immorality, he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 says, flee idolatry. Flee anything that elevates itself above God. Stay away from that. Whatever that is for you, you'll figure it out. I know what it is for me. But whatever it is that tries to creep up in the priority life of your life, and you go, that's becoming too important to me, Paul says, don't let it be. Flee that. 1 Timothy 6.11, flee the love of money, he says. There's all these things that come at us, and Paul says, one thing you got to do is you got to run away. But that's not the only thing. There's a second place you run. Look back at verse 22. You run from sinful passions, but verse 22 also says, you run towards godliness. You run towards godliness. Verse 22 says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So you just don't run scared, you run towards. You run, righteous, run towards righteousness. You run towards faith and love and peace. The idea of pursue there, it's the same Greek word, by the way, as the word for persecute, which means like hunt it down, right? So he says to Pastor Ross, he says to you, I want you to run hard after righteousness and after faith. By the way, I was thinking, your church here, I don't know what they will be, but you're going to face huge challenges of faith in the coming years. Instead of seeing those as like, oh no, think of those as, oh boy, we got to run towards faith. This is going to move us towards faith. We're going to have to trust God for this one. Well, that's part of how you grow. You run towards that. So you pursue, you go after it. I don't know if any of you watched uh, any of the U.S. Open these last few days. Uh, Canada's been a little fixated on it because uh, there's been this young gal, Layla Fernandez, turned 19. She's this young tennis player, never done anything like this in her life, and she was in the finals yesterday for the U.S. Open. And so we were home, we had our popcorn, and we were cheering her on, and she lost to a gal from Great Britain who was 18. It was just an amazing time. But I thought about these two young women, 19, 18 years old, they have spent the better part of their lifetime pursuing athletic excellence. I think God would say to you, Ross, you pursue spiritual excellence. You run towards that with all you have. You break a sweat to go for that. What your people need most is your personal godliness. Run after that. So you run from sinful passions. You run towards godliness. Here's the last thing from verse 22. You run with other runners. It's a lot easier to do this, by the way, when you're not by yourself. So you run with other runners because verse 22 says, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And then look what comes next. Along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Ajith Fernando says that for many years he, he, didn't, he missed that. He thought he was running all by himself. I'm running away from evil. I'm running towards the good. But he said, wait a second. It says I'm supposed to run along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Here's where it's a blessing that God has put other godly men around you, your elders, staff men and women, your congregation. By the way, brothers and sisters, one of the ways you can help Pastor Ross run well is you keep running well, right? So you become those who are like, Pastor Ross, we're running towards godliness, we're running from sinful passions. If you want to keep up with us, we're running hard, and that will motivate him to go, you know what, man, the people that I love, they're going for it. I want, to be, I want to be a blessing to them. It will spur him on. So you have a place 
welcome them into your hearts and then show them by your own life you're going for this. I can tell you, having been a pastor for many years, it fires you up as a pastor to serve a people who are hungry for the word of God and who are running after godliness. It's a joy to serve a people like that. May you be that congregation for the Kearneys. So you want to be useful to God? First thing he says is you must handle God's word accurately. You must handle temptation immediately. Let me close with the last one. Comes in verses 23 to 26. This one's a little harder to deal with, but you must handle opposition graciously. You must handle opposition graciously. That's what Paul tells Timothy. You see, ministry comes with pushback. It always has. It always will. In fact, if you go to chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul reminds Timothy, hey, Timothy, you saw this. You saw the pushback I got. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Catch verse 11. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at, at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. He says, Timothy, you were with me. Man, you know what it was like. You know the pushback I've gotten. And now he's going to tell Timothy in chapter 2, verses 23 to 26, Timothy, you're going to have to handle it too, and I want you to do it graciously. Look at verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not, quarrel, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you live in a context where there's a lot of controversy and conflict. And some of that's going to hit you. And you're going to have to learn to handle that graciously. You know, the last 18 months have exaggerated and amplified our human tendency to fight with each other. It's like everybody's testy. It's like everyone has an opinion and they want to tell you it with vehemence. It's like the respect and deference that used to be given to spiritual authorities has evaporated. And in the midst of that, you're called to be a pastor. And yet you're called to handle those who act inappropriately, you're to handle it with gentleness and graciousness, because that's what Paul says. He kind of gives uh, Timothy three things there. Verse 23, he says, turn away from quarreling. Look at that. Turn away from quarreling. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. Man, we've got a host of controversies right now, and they're breeding a host of quarrels. Paul says, don't go there have nothing to do with them. The man of God must not, look at look what he goes on to say, verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He's saying pastors cannot be quarrelsome. Well, you say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to quarrel? 
Is quarreling just telling, having a dialogue or a debate with someone? The Greek word for quarrel means to fight. It's used in Acts 7.26 of people that are actually fisticuffing it, right? So it really means a verbal fight. So whenever a dialogue starts to turn into a verbal fisticuff, Paul's saying, don't go there. Yes, there's a place for reasoning and dialoguing and even debating, but not fighting, he says. Turn away from quarreling. The second thing he tells them to do is to teach truth graciously. To teach truth graciously. Look at it again at verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So you don't go silent. You keep talking, but what you do is you teach. You teach God's word accurately, and you do it winsomely and graciously. It's interesting in verse 24, Paul says, the Lord's servant must be kind to everyone. I don't see a little asterisk there that says, well, actually not everyone. There's a few people that are just beyond the pale. It doesn't say that. It says kind to everyone. And then he says, correcting, verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You know, like everyone else, I've had some people come at me in the last uh, weeks that have been pretty hot to trot, and they've been angry, and they've been upset. And I was thinking about these verses. The Lord is saying to me, and by the way, he's saying to all of us, you know how you're supposed to handle somebody who comes at you, and they're vehement, and they're angry, and they want to fight? The scripture says, you don't go there. In fact, you still respond with gentleness. You say, well, that's going to feel like weakness. Right? They're just going to plow over me, and here I am gentle to them. No, gentleness is not weakness, is it? It's really strength under control. A couple years ago, Linda and I were in Thailand for some ministry conferences, and the, uh, the, the host that had us there took us to an elephant park. And we saw these giant elephants who had been trained. They were hauling logs and moving things. These things were huge, and they were strong. And at the end, they said, if you want to get kissed by an elephant, come to the front. We thought, well, that sounds pretty amazing. Who's been kissed by an elephant? So we came to the front, and they had us stand there, and the elephant comes up behind you and takes his or her long trunk, wraps it around your neck, and then puts his little nose on your side of your cheek and sucks. <laughs> and I remember when the elephant had his, his trunk around me, I thought, if this guy decides to squeeze, he's going to pop my head off like a grape. You know, it's just, he had so much strength. And yet that thing was gentle, just a slobbery little kiss on the cheek from an elephant that's big enough to crush me. A smart pastor like Ross could crush most people in an argument. But Paul says to Timothy, that's not what you do. You teach the truth, you correct people, but you do it gently. You say, how can you do that when people get under your skin? When, they, when your blood pressure starts going up and your heart starts racing. Well, the third thing that keeps you sane and keeps you safe is that you trust God to change hearts. Here's how you, here's how you stay away from arguments. You just say, look, it's not my job to arm wrestle somebody into thinking like I think. Because look what Paul says in verse 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul's saying, Timothy, it's actually not your job to change hearts. That's God's, heart, God's job. 
It's your job to teach truth, show graciousness, and then you hope and you pray that God might allow his truth to come into someone's heart and change it. And you know that God can do that, Pastor Ross, because he's done that for you. Right? He's done that for all of us. The Bible says that all of us were born enslaved by the devil. All of us were trapped. And yet at some point, God in his grace gave us what Paul talks about here in uh, verse 25. He gave us the ability to repent. He opened our eyes to the fact that Jesus had come for all of my sins, all of your sins, all of our sins. And one day we saw it. And we saw that Christ had died for us, not just for the world, but for us. And we saw it, and we seized it, and we believed it. And we knew that he rose from the dead for us. And when that happened, God changed our hearts, right? He's done that for me. He's done that for you. And that's how you can handle when somebody seems so difficult to deal with. You say, well, I know God can do miracles. He changed my heart. Maybe he'll change theirs. So what does it take to be a minister God uses? For Pastor Ross, but what does it take to be a person that God uses for you? Paul is saying in this text, you got to handle God's word accurately. You got to handle temptation immediately. And then you handle conflict graciously. My prayer for your pastor and his family, my prayer for you as a congregation, is that as your pastor and as you seek to do that, God, by his grace, will make this next season of years here at Harvest Niagara just the greatest season, and that he would use your pastor and family and this congregation to be a bright light in this peninsula and around the world. Can I close by praying for us, and then I think our worship team is going to lead us in a final song. Heavenly Father, I thank you that on this morning we can entrust the Kearneys to you. They're not adequate for this, Lord. They know that. But their adequacy actually comes from you, so you will give them all they need to do all you've called them to do. Thank you for those godly uh, elders and people that will surround them and be runners with them. But today I just pray for Pastor Ross that you would grant him, by your good grace, to be that minister that teaches your word accurately week after week, that runs from temptation immediately and handles any opposition that comes graciously in a way that brings great glory to you and great joy to your church. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.